In the first episode of this series on whether COVID changed the world, I spoke of my disappointment. I was disappointed because I had thought the terrible experience of the pandemic might give birth to a new reality, one which was more equal than what came before my comparison was with the Second World War. I was disappointed, of course, because as will probably be obvious to most people living through this current cost of living crisis, that's not what happened. Covid, in fact, increased inequality and many of the workers we adulated during the pandemic have, instead of being rewarded, been asked to take a pay cut. Now, on an emotional level, this is all rather depressing. On an intellectual level, though, what I want to know, what I'm fascinated by, is the question of why I got this so wrong. And one way of exploring the reason for making poor predictions, as I have here, is to compare notes with someone who has consistently made better ones. And Gary Stevenson certainly fits that bill. As you'll hear in this conversation, in the early 2010s, Gary became a millionaire by correctly predicting economic trends in the UK economy. And when it comes to the question motivating this show, he has a very strong claim to have been correct once again. Back in March 2020, so when many of us were welcoming the support packages offered by Rishi Sunak and finance ministers across the world, Gary Stevenson saw a problem. He recognised it was necessary for governments to provide money to people unable to work during lockdown, so he wasn't opposed to things such as furlough. But he also became obsessed with the question of where all this newly printed money would end up. So while people were focusing on who's going to get the first tranche of this money, whose bank accounts will these handouts from the government you know, initially land in, he was obsessed with where it would end up. Now, I won't preempt Gary's argument too much because he explains it brilliantly in this interview. Um, but all you really need to know now is that at the start of the pandemic, so right back in March 2020, this approach, this obsession with where this money would end up, led Gary to predict that our policy response to COVID-19 would lead to increased inflation and increased inequality. Um, lo and behold, that's exactly what we see now. Now, it's important to note, none of this means I think Gary is some kind of clairvoyant, and we have a number of points of disagreement in this conversation. But I think we can probably all agree, when you meet someone who keeps making correct calls, who keeps making correct predictions, it would be silly not to take their arguments very, very seriously. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. This is the third episode in our series on whether COVID changed the world. This show and this series is only possible because of our kind supporters on Patreon. You can become one by visiting patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. And that will give you access to all full Crash Course episodes, including an extra 30 minutes of this conversation with Gary Stevenson. There's a bonus 30 minutes for Patreon subscribers. And you can sign up for as little as £3 a month. And we're also offering a seven day free trial. Gary Stevenson, thank you for joining me on Crash Course. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, you've got some pretty strong arguments when it comes to, to COVID and inequality. We're going to get onto those, talk through those. Um, first of all, a little bit of background about you. Um, I mean, we've talked before on my other job at, at Navarra Media, but for our audience who might not be familiar with you, um, you've gone from being a successful city trader I think sort of the, the number one city trader at Citibank, wasn't at it? One about point, 10, at one point. At one point. Um, to become a commentator on economic inequality. Um, so I suppose, you know, we could talk about this for an hour, but quite briefly, sort of talk me through that, that transition, that journey. Yeah, so I started working as a trader at Citibank in 2008. Um, I, I studied maths and economics at LSE, London School of Economics in London. And I, a Citibank before 2008 crisis used to hire a one trader year through a card game. And I won this card game and got a job as an interest rates trader without really knowing anything about finance. That job started in June 2008, um, which is obviously a few months before the Lehman crisis. Um, in the Lehman crisis, basically all interest rates in the whole world collapsed to zero. Um, my job, the job of my team was betting on future interest rates. So our job was basically betting when will interest rates recover. Um, and in 2008, everybody thought rates would go back up in 2009. In 2009, they said 2010. In 2010, they said 2011. That continued every single year until 2020, when everybody finally agreed rates would stay zero forever, obviously immediately before they went up. So I was sitting there as a trader watching everybody be wrong. You know, when they say rates are going to go up, they're basically saying the economy is going to recover. Every year it didn't happen. 
And after sort of about two and a half years of watching everybody be wrong, I started to think, you know, why is it the economy's not recovering? Um, why is it rates aren't going up? Um, why is it that low rates aren't getting people spending money? So I went out and asked people, why are you not spending money? And, you know, you can guess what the answer was. Everybody said, because we don't have any money. Um, then in 2011, we had the sovereign debt crisis when all the governments, all the big governments in the world, it was revealed they were running out of money. They didn't have, they couldn't pay their bills. And I saw this similarity between the situation of my friends and family and international governments, that they're both spending more than their income, losing their assets, getting poorer year after year. And I, and I was left thinking, well, where's, where's all the money? Where's all the wealth? And that led me to the conclusion that it was a problem of basically inequality. Um, and I started to bet that we would never get a recovery because we weren't doing anything and we still aren't doing anything to reduce inequality. And that led to me being Citibank's top trader in the world in 2011. And um, that sort of sat with me, basically. You know, if you're, you're judged to be the best in your world, that predict, best in the world that predicts the economy based on the fact that the economy is going to get worse forever. I just felt I had to try and do something about it, basically. So um, I left. It took me a bit of, it took me a bit of Difficulty to leave, but eventually, twenty fourteen, I left, and since then, I've been basically trying to explain to people, you know, if you don't deal with inequality, you're going to get more, more, and more serious economic problems. And I think the last three years, which we're going to talk about, is a, is a fantastic example of that. And I suppose, I mean, I, I presume you've seen the Big Short, and some of our audience yeah. would have done. It, it sounds a bit like that story where you've got the people who there's a consensus in the finance sector where everyone is looking at their models and looking at the past and what's going to happen in the future, and then you've got this sort of crew of renegades who were just actually walking down the high street and saying oh no something's about to collapse and you were sort of walking down the high street and saying recovery is not coming because i can see how poor people are still yeah poor. there's a massive disconnect basically there's a massive disconnect and i think there was some data that came out yesterday there was a report on economics the subject in the uk and it found that economics was the least class diverse subject of all subjects in the country so you've got a subject here where very very few people are making it in from poor backgrounds. And then of those that make it into the cities, it's super, super few or into sort of elite economics in terms of being professors and that. So I think there's a massive problem and, you know, we'll probably get into this later. I think there's a massive problem of economists and economics in general just being tragically, horribly out of touch with what's actually happening in people's lives and what that means for the economy. So not only are they disconnected from people's lives, it also means their economic predictions end up being wrong. So they're not talking about the priorities of ordinary people and their predictions are wrong because it's actually ordinary people that have a lot of impact yeah, on what the economy is going to do in the future. percent of the economy is ordinary people. And if you don't understand what their lives are like, you're going to struggle to understand what the economy is like, I think. Let's get on to, to COVID and the economic policies and their consequences. So I'm going to take us back to March 2020. So it had become apparent that COVID was going to lead to lockdowns and that lockdowns would threaten a lot of jobs. Obviously, businesses couldn't continue working or many of them couldn't. The government response was to step in with the furlough scheme. And so the furlough scheme, this will, you know, our, our UK audience will be very familiar with it, replaced 80% of people's wages while they were unable to work and they were encouraged to to stay at home. I mean, in some cases, there were laws that demanded they, they stay at home. And this was largely paid for by printing money. So some of it was from borrowing, some of it was from the Bank of England printing money. Now, this policy is generally celebrated as a progressive one. You know, it's, the idea is that the government stepped in and wrapped a sort of protective ring around people. It could have been the case that we would have had a severe depression and lots of people, you know, become essentially destitute because they lost their jobs or couldn't go to work. Instead, what happened was there was a sort of creative use of monetary policy, which meant that, you know, people were essentially, most people were protected from the savages of, of a pandemic and a lockdown. Um, you have a different perspective and you have had a different perspective from the very start from when furlough was first announced from i suppose you know most progressive economists and commentators who sort of said oh this is one of the few good policies the tory government have done why do you differ on that question all right so i think we were speaking actually about this I was, we were talking a little bit at the very beginning of covid i was trying to say this is going to cause a massive increase in inequality so my perspective comes from my background as somebody who has made a lot of money by understanding that economists generally don't understand the significance of inequality and changes in the distribution. So whenever anything big happens, if it changes the distribution, it will cause economic effects that economists generally will not predict. Because economists, their instinct is never to look at the distribution. So from the very beginning of COVID, it was very obvious the government of the UK, governments around the world, were going to pour enormous amounts of money into the economy, largely printed money, all right? 
from my perspective, somebody whose interest is, is in inequality, all I want to know, who ends up with that money? Not who gets the money initially, right? If, if you pour, so initially it was 250 billion, then it was 450 billion. By now it's 700 billion. But let's say if you pour 400 billion into the economy, somebody gets it initially, but it will sit with somebody. You know, if I pour like, if I pour 100 litres of water into a swimming pool, then that has to be somewhere in the pool, right? So I wanted to know not who gets the money initially, but where does it end up? And it was actually, it was quite baffling at the beginning of COVID, right? Because the whole narrative was this money is going to furloughed workers. But if you look at the furloughed workers, it's very clear that they're not ending up richer than they would have been had COVID not happened. So they cannot be the end recipients of the money. So I was kind of scratching my head about this at the beginning of COVID. Like, it's huge. The amount of money that's gone in so far in this country is £14,000 per adult. In the US, it's $25,000 per person, including kids. It's absolutely unbelievably huge amounts of money have been given out. It's obvious that money has not accumulated to furloughed workers. If it had all gone to furloughed workers, it would have been 50 grand per furloughed worker. And, and I can guarantee you, furloughed workers are not sitting at home with an extra 50 grand in the bank. So I was racking my brains about, well, who, who is accumulating the money? Where does the money end up pooling? And what I did basically was I followed it through the system, right? So, okay, let's consider the money that goes to furloughed workers. First step, it goes to furloughed worker, but we know they don't get richer. In fact, furloughed workers end up poorer than they would have been had COVID not have happened because it's only 80% of their wages. And the reason they end up poorer is because they're not getting their wages. So who has the wages that would have gone to the furloughed workers? Okay, well, that's the companies that employ them. So are the companies richer? Actually, it's not the companies because the companies that employed furloughed workers in most cases were shut down during COVID. So they didn't benefit. Okay, so who has the money, which normally is the revenue of the companies? That's the customers of the companies. And that is actually the correct answer. The people who accumulated money during COVID are customers. And I think a lot of people, when they hear that, will think, all right, well, I'm a customer. How come I haven't accumulated £14,000 in the last two years? And that's because it's not all customers, right? So if you are somebody in an ordinary financial position or a poorer person, most of your expenditures are rent, mortgage, food, bills. Those expenditures continue during COVID. But if, what are the expenditures that stopped? Well, it's luxury expenditures, right? It's holidays, it's hotels, it's restaurants, it's bars. It's basically luxury, non-essential spending. So money accumulated to people during COVID exactly proportionally to their normal luxury spend. Well, that is a very, very good proxy for basically how rich you are. So from the very beginning of COVID, we could see what is actually happening here is rich people are stopping spending because it's legally mandated. And that means a lot of poorer people who work in the service industry are losing their incomes and the government is stepping in. So what, what essentially has happened is in normal times, you have a kind of cycle of money, which is you pay your rent, your mortgage, your food, your bills, it goes to the rich and they have luxury spending and that goes back to ordinary working people. They stop spending, the government's come and replace that cash. So the money comes from the government to you, you pay your rent, it goes to the rich and they legally can't spend it. So once you follow it through, you can see very clearly there is going to be a massive accumulation of cash during lockdown. And I think it's, I honestly think it's amazing and it really tells you something about our economics academia or economics media that nobody thought to ask if the government's given out 700 billion pounds where's that going to end up nobody thought to ask that and if you do ask that you very quickly see okay when we end the lockdown we, you're literally talking if that money's gone to the top 10 percent you're talking about every single adult in the top 10 percent accumulating 140 grand each that's how much money this is so the idea that we're gonna just unpause the economy and go back to normal it's absurd because you're going back to a world in which the rich have accumulated enormous, truly enormous piles of cash. And I think there's an interesting like, thought experiment you can do where you sit down and you think to yourself, what do I think would happen if the government gave all the rich people in the country 140 grand each? Well, what I think would happen is first you'd see fucking house prices go through. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? You are allowed to swear. First you see house prices go through the roof. Then you'll see stock prices go through the roof. And then they'll feel even richer because their assets have got richer. Eventually, they're going to start spending. You know, I would say London rents will go crazy because these guys will increase their usage of property. They're, they'll give the money to their kids. Their kids will buy property. And basically, they'll push prices up, which is fine if you've just accumulated 140 grand cash. But it's not good for, for poor people who didn't accumulate that money. So I think really all you need to do 
is be willing to just look at the distributional effects of COVID and lockdown together. I think it's amazing that nobody did that. And if you, if you do look at it, you'll see very quickly, wow, we've pumped truly enormous amounts of cash into the bank accounts of the rich during COVID. And then as a result of that, you know, I made a video in June 2020. I wrote an article in March 2020 saying what we're going to see when we come out of lockdown, mass increase in house prices, mass increase in stock prices, mass increase in inequality, mass increase in inflation and a cost of living crisis for ordinary people. Because just think about it logically. If you make the richest people in the country 700 billion pounds richer during a period of time when the economy is literally closed, where's the money coming from? It is making ordinary people poor. Obviously, obviously. And that should have been obvious from the start. And it's, it's super frustrating for me to see that we're still talking today as if, you know, this is... I think people think when the government gives out money, they think it's like you burn firewood and it's disappeared. When the government gives out money, somebody gets money. The government's given out 700 billion in the bank accounts of the rich. If we were willing, to, were willing to tax it back, well, you'd see the end of inflation for one thing. Imagine if the government said we're going to tax £14,000 for every adult. Inflation would disappear, you know, straight away. And yet nobody is talking about this distribution of cash as if it's at the heart of this problem. You know, we have seen the biggest and fastest ever increase in billionaire wealth and millionaire wealth in this country ever in the last three years. And now we've got a government that says we can't afford to pay nurses more. You know, we, we need to bring this into the conversation. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that argument from you is probably going to be the basis of most of this conversation. So let's break it down sort of step by step. And I want to take the figure, right? So I, I keep hearing you say, you know, 700 billion pounds um, was created and ended up in the hands of the rich. Where does that number come from? So that number is exactly the total government deficit since the beginning of COVID, which to be very clear, that is the total amount of government spending above and beyond government taxation. So when the government taxes and spends, it, it doesn't increase the amount of money people have. It just moves it around. I tax you, I give it to you, moves it around. But when the government prints and spends, which is essentially what most of what COVID was, or when it borrows and spends, it increases the money. So if I print money and give it to you, you've got more money. That's deficit. If I borrow money from you and then give the money that I borrowed to you, you have the credit because you're owed money and you have the money. So increase the money in society. So I think this is, there's a, if people want to really get into the detail of this, there's a video called what is money and also what is the 700 billion on my YouTube, which really gets into like the full detail of it. So people are confused, but essentially it's the government deficit, which is, which is the amount of money the government has given out. I think it's, it's really important for people to realize when the government takes on debt, somebody else has the credit and it increases the amount of money held in society. You know, if I, if I walk into a room and give £100 out, somebody has £100 extra. So it's, to be very clear, it's the government deficit, partially funded by quantitative easing, which is printing, which we can get into, and partially funded by borrowing. But So how is that specific to COVID? Because I was sort of looking up what was actually spent on COVID measures. And so the, the, the estimations sort of go between 310 and £410 billion, pounds. that's depending on if you ask the IMF or the Office for Budget Responsibility or the National Audit Office. And the breakdown of that, so furlough plus the self-employed support scheme, that's £100 billion. Pounds. Health and social care, COVID spend, so that includes test and trace, PPE, etc. That's £75 billion. Pounds. And there's about £100 billion pounds in loans and grants to businesses. Yeah. So if this COVID spend is... 310 to yeah. 410 billion pounds. Where did the rest go if we're talking about this 700 billion deficit? So the government runs a deficit in normal times anyway. So, you know, I can, I can send you a graph you can look at, which you'll see that it, government, total government debt is going up and up over time. When the government debt increases, that's, the government debt is private money holdings, essentially. So when the government goes more and more into debt, people have more and more money. Um, and it's going up over time. So I think without COVID, you probably would have still seen them rack up something like an extra 200 billion of debt because it's been three or four years and that's sort of the rate at which government debt increases. Um, but there's been a big jump up because of COVID. Um, I think really the, the point is that I'm trying to illustrate is there has been a massive increase in debt above and beyond because of COVID and that money is held by someone. I think this is, I think it's a, that's, it's a really important Part of the debate that is missing, because once you assume that this money that is given out disappears, then you create this kind of artificial scarcity on behalf of the government. And you say, well, the government's 
the government debt, government debt has increased 700 billion in the last three years. That is, you know, verifiable fact. That is basically the number, the increase in government debt. I think most people do not realise that private money holdings and credit, money owed to them, must have increased by 700 billion as well. That is how government debt works. And I think when you see it like that, you can see more clearly what's happened over the last three years, which is that the, the biggest thing we have changed is the distribution. And essentially what we have changed is a distributional crisis. A huge amount of money went from the government to private individuals. And, you know, the work hasn't been done who ended up with it, but it's enormous. It's 14,000 pounds per person. If it's gone to the richest 10%, it's 140,000 pounds per person in the richest 10%. If we don't recognise that money is there, then you enforce scarcity on the government. You say, you treat the government as an individual. You say, well, the government's 700 billion pounds in debt. There's nothing we can do. We basically have to shut the NHS down. We basically have to get rid of government services. And that is essentially true. If you assume that once the government has given money away, there's no way for the government to get the debt back, then the government is poor. You know, if you were to give away all of your assets and, you know, give away everything you own and then take on a huge amount of debt, you would then have to live a life of destitution and poverty. But this is not an individual. This is the government. The money that has been given out is held by someone. And by and large, it's held by wealthy British individuals. If we accept the possibility that we can take some of that back via taxation, then we don't need to dismantle the NHS. If we don't accept that, the NHS will be dismantled because it is not affordable. The only way it's affordable is if you if you are willing to use the assets of wealthy British people. So let's talk about deficits and I suppose how COVID is different from what went before. Yeah. So the government has been running a deficit for, for years. I mean, I, I think we're yeah. very, very rarely in a surplus. So it's, it's normal for the government to be in debt. And also a lot of that was done by a quantitative easing. So essentially money printing ever mm. since 2008. And during that period, we had incredibly low inflation. Yeah. So it didn't seem like there was an excess of money in, in society. I mean, you can, yeah. you can say in certain assets, maybe. So yeah. in, in well, rent and, and house that. prices, potentially. But in terms of yeah. food and all the things that we're seeing are, are yeah. rising in prices now, that wasn't happening then. So sort of, yeah. other than the fact that the deficit got a bit bigger, yeah. I suppose your argument is that rich people accrued savings, which were then unleashed after lockdowns? Well, or? to be honest, go back and look at 2011. On a very similar time horizon after 2008, as to what we saw after 2020, there was a big increase of inflation in primarily driven by food and energy and rents. It was referred to in the media as a cost of living crisis. You know, I'm a bit older than you, Mark. I was a trader from 2008 to 2014. Um, I remember watching it happen. You know, it was very, very similar. Very similar. The only real difference was the scale. And I remember thinking at the time how amazing it was. The general media consensus at the time in 2011 was that we have a very strong economy by cost of living crisis. And I remember thinking, because what's a bad economy for you guys? <laughs> you know, um, but we did have a, we had a very similar situation in 2011. So um, I think it was less because at the same time we had a massive, massive credit contraction. So before 2008, there was very, very liberal lending and that ended after 2008. So for a large, for a large number of people sort of in the middle, they really lost their ability to spend during 2008. And we also had a much, much bigger increase in unemployment, which meant a big chunk of ordinary people couldn't spend. Um, so I think that constrained the inflation that we saw after 2008. Um, the scale was less. We didn't see the same massive accumulation of cash in people's bank accounts. Um, but I think the way I see it is two things are happening simultaneously, which is number one, a huge amount of money has been given out, which is inflationary. Number two, there's been a massive increase in inequality, which in a sense is deflationary because you are impoverishing ordinary people and poorer people who are the kind of people who generally spend money that they have and you're enriching the very rich who are the kind of people who generally save money that they have so i think there are two things happening i think now that we've stopped pumping money out i think we will see inflation normalize very quickly and we'll move into a much more of a post 2008 situation where ordinary people are impoverished they can't afford to spend and inflation stays low but i think the increase in inequality will not be retrenched I think what, what you will basically see from now is a shift. And we, this is the same thing that happened after 2008. You had a one-off massive surge in basic essentials. And then that stopped because people are poor. But what continued was a massive long-run increase in asset prices because the rich stay rich. And 
it becomes almost impossible for the rich not to be rich. Because if, if you give the whole rich as a class 700 billion, they cannot get rid of that money because what they buy is assets. And some of that will be purchasing assets from the middle class, which makes them richer in the long run. But otherwise, they're basically buying the assets from each other. So I think we did see inflation post-2008. Um, it subsided, and I think you'll see, the sub you'll see the inflation this time subside as well, but it'll transition to more of a long-term asset inflation like, like it did last time. I suppose, I mean, we're going to keep sort of going around this argument from different perspectives, I think, I suppose, how sort of this is probably going to be structured. So, so I'm sure I can yeah. make sense of it and sort of the strength of the argument and potentially sort of the, the weaknesses as well, I might suggest some. Um, so the argument, as I understand it, you have yeah. lockdown happens. Mm -hmm. um, people think we can't go to our jobs, so we need some money given to us. Or, you know, this is actually a job protection scheme, right? So it means that people don't get put on the the unemployment pile or whatever um, they get money they feel like i'm doing okay because i'm getting this money from from the government um they're spending it on the things they normally spend it on rent etc etc et what is in what's invisible in this process is that the rich because they've stopped spending money yeah. are actually accruing piles and piles and piles of wealth yeah you because as an individual have stopped getting your money from rich people spending and you've started getting it from the government yeah so essentially that money comes from the government to you goes to the rich and it pulls there. And it's very, very invisible from the perspective of an ordinary person. But it's, this is not controversial. It's generally accepted that there has been an enormous increase in cash savings by the rich. So yeah. I think this is broadly was it Was it just the rich? So I, I mean, I, I, I accept, obviously, it's going to be the rich the most. You yeah. know, if you give the rich money, they're going to save it more than if you give anyone else money. But I think there was also probably a, a fairly broad section of society yeah. who managed to save a few thousand yeah, over, over lockdown. Like yeah. I remember buying a laptop because, yeah. you know, it's luxury spending isn't just what this one rich nice. people do. Um, yeah, this one is <laughs> sort of a little bit out of date now. Um, it, it, it's just all services, right? So, so most yeah. middle class people and especially sort of young professionals or whatever, yeah. they're going to spend a lot of money going to pubs. Yeah, yeah. Um, going out for, for nightlife. Yeah. And so some of that money was saved in the bank bank yeah. accounts of ordinary middle-class people. Yeah. And they probably don't, that's probably not still sitting on those savings, but that'll yeah. partly be because maybe they, you know, invested in a laptop yeah. no, <laughs> in, my, in my example. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It hasn't, it didn't go exclusively to the rich. And, you know, in reality, it's, it's you know, the rich got the most and people in the middle got the, got a bit less. And even, even some poor people managed to accumulate a little bit of money during COVID. And I think that is one of the reasons why it's been particularly inflationary because the money has not gone exclusively to the rich and ordinary people are much more likely to spend it on goods and services to drive prices up. Um, and I think what this does is it opens up like a really interesting sort of question to think about, to ask yourself, which is if the government gives you a thousand pounds, and gives your brother £2,000 and gives the top 10% 100, 200 grand each, are you richer? I think this is, a, because this is essentially what happened during COVID and I think in terms of end accumulation of money. And this is during COVID when people were saying, you know, we're gonna come out of COVID and go back to normal. And, and I was like, how can you say that without doing this analysis of this massive and unequal increase in savings? You know, that is what happened. So if we're asking ourselves a question, we're sitting, we're in lockdown, we're three years ago. And we're saying, what's the world going to look like post-COVID? You need to ask yourself this question. Okay, what, how does my life change if I get £1,000 and my mates get £1,000 and the richest people get 200 grand? How does my life change? And I think this is, it's quite an interesting thing to think about, about what money is and how money affects you. Because for me, my, my perspective would be, you know, if you get £1,000 and everyone in your group gets £1,000 and everyone in that group gets 200 grand you're going to be fucked after the opening. And the way you will be fucked is obviously through inflation. Obviously. Obviously. And I think that, you know, it, it shouldn't have been difficult to predict a massive increase in inflation. And I did predict the massive increase because you've given these guys a load of money. But it's very counterintuitive for somebody to think, well, I've accumulated grand and I'm worse off. And I, what I think is really interesting about this, so... Last September, we had Liz Trust. It was September, right? Mm -hmm. And she came in with a policy of what we're going to do is we're going to cut taxes in such a way that your average worker is going to save like 100 quid, 200 quid. And your average wealthy person is going to save like 20 grand. Those are the tax cuts that she proposed. And she thought she could get away with that. And when that happened, I thought, this is my fault. This is my fault. And it's the fault of the economic communicators on the left. Because... We allowed the government to deal with COVID in such a way that it gave every ordinary person a grand, two grand, and it gave everyone in the rich 200 grand. 
and everyone was happy with it. And if you allow the government to massively increase inequality in a way that ordinary people accept and in a way that causes an immediate and rapid decrease in living standards for ordinary people, then you cannot be surprised when Liz Truss comes in and says, what we're going to do is cut your taxes a little bit and cut our taxes by a fucking ton. We have to be willing and able to analyse economic policy changes from a distribution perspective and be able to recognise that I am cash richer, but my group is massively disadvantaged relative to that group. And, you know, money is not real resources. Money is a relative resource. It's a resource that we use to distribute the real resources. So if we give you a little bit more money and we give the other group a massive amount more money, you will get more money and less real resources because money is a competitive good, essentially. Money is, is simply the way we distribute resources. So I think it's highlighted a massive weakness on the left um, that I think has been going around for a long time, which is we're focused on get more money to poor people without looking at what's happened to distribution. So both COVID and Trustonomics were ideas where we can manage this crisis in such a way that poor people get a little bit more money and get massively worse off. And we need to be willing, willing to understand that. And you're, I suppose your alternative would have been to say, let's do furlough. Yeah. But what we're going to do is recognise that a lot of that money is going to tri trickle up to the rich. They're not spending it. So they're yeah. going to be sitting on these huge piles of cash. So we should have some sort of solidarity tax. So sort of you say, look, yeah. we know the rich are getting richer. We're going to slap a sort of windfall tax on you to prevent an inflationary spiral once lockdown is yeah. released. The very first thing you have to do and the very first mistake that was made was a lack of analysis. You it is, it, is it is unforgivable and, and truly amazing that we have lived through three years in which the UK government has given out 700 billion pounds and the US government has given out $8 trillion and nobody has done the analysis of who is sitting on that cash. That is one of the most fantastic and amazing things I've witnessed. It is such an unbelievable example of broad elite incompetence. This question has to be, if you, if you held the government and you were going to print and give out what was initially $450 billion, you have to do an analysis. It, it, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing and it tells you something about the absolute toilet of a state of economics media in this country and in the world that those amounts of money were able to be given out without anybody even asking who will accumulate that money. That is the, and it, once you ask that question, the rest is simple. As soon as you ask that question, then we're sitting here in May 2020, June 2020, saying, wow, we're going to be fucked here. Because when we reopen, we're literally talking about and piles of cash in the bank accounts of the rich. They're obviously going to start buying assets from the middle class. They're obviously going to start pushing prices up. And those of us who didn't accumulate that cash are going to be fucked. So we need to do... We could have had that discussion. And, you know, lockdowns went on for two, two and a half years. So we had two and a half years to have that discussion of how do we deal with the enormous increase in inequality, which nobody, nobody argues that hasn't happened. Now. Everybody can see that has happened. We, we had two and a half years to say, OK, if we don't do anything, then we will have dealt with COVID in such a way that it causes the largest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of Western economies. Do we want that? And that, because the analysis wasn't done, the discussion wasn't had. And now we're sitting here immediately following the biggest increase in inequality in the history of the country, in the biggest and quickest fall in living standards outside of wartime in the history of the country. And nobody is saying, should we tax the rich? And it's because, it's because we didn't discuss it during COVID. That's the problem. I think if people knew, if your average man on the street knew that while they're struggling to feed their kids, you've seen the biggest and fastest ever increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth in history, then they would be saying, of course, tax them. And if they knew that that money ultimately came from the government, of course, tax them. So I think the main thing you need to do is understand that that money exists and is sitting somewhere. And then once you understand that, OK, well, we can't afford to eat. These guys are getting massively richer, basically on the back of government policy. Undo it, yeah. You know, bring a tax in on the richest people in the country. So let's talk about predictions. So I think, you know, one thing that's interesting about you, impressive about you, is you sort of distinguish yourself from other commentators and academic economists by saying, 
I don't just say stuff that sounds plausible. I make predictions and they're correct. So when yeah. you were in the banking sector, you were predicting that interest rates aren't going to go up because inequality means that the you know growth isn't going to return. Yeah. Now you have this claim to say, I got, a, I, I got another prediction correct because at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when other people were predicting um, that we would have you know, deep recessions, high unemployment, sort of long-term stagnation, you were saying actually printing all this money is going to mean that when we come out of lockdowns, there's going to be really high inflation. And that's correct. So we came out of the lockdowns and there was really high inflation. I suppose, and this is potentially a funny way to phrase this question because it's, it, it's, it relates to some quite unpleasant things, but is there a sense in which you as a, a soothsayer got lucky, right? Because a big yeah. part of the inflation that we're seeing now, yeah, yeah, which yeah. seems to back up your argument, uh -huh. is because of things you didn't predict. So the Ukraine yeah. war, for example, yeah, yeah, yeah. massively increased the price of oil and gas. And there were sort of supply chain issues in, in, in China and supply chain issues everywhere, actually. Yeah. People leaving the labor market because they retired early. So there are a lot of different yeah. sort of causes of yeah. the inflation we're currently seeing now, which are external to your predictions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's possible that my predictions um, are right because I got lucky. Um, if that's true, then I've been, I've been lucky for a long, long time um, because, you know, I was Citibank's top trade in 2011 because I predicted that crisis would, would, would drag on much, much longer than everybody thought. And that those, I predicted that rates would stay zero for much longer than everybody thought. You know, people forget, but in 2020, everybody's predicting rates will go up really quickly. Um, and I was right on that one. Um, you know, I've been around economics for a long time, for a long time. Um, I, I did my degree 2005 to 2008, and I worked in the city 2008 to 2014. Um, economics is not a subject where we can run experiments. So there's absolutely no way of knowing with certainty who was right and why, because we can't go back and say, okay, well, what if the inequality didn't happen? Did, would this still happen? There's no way of doing that. Um, so... How do we as a society decide who we listen to and who we don't? I think it, ultimately, this is what you're getting at with your question, right? How do we decide when it comes to economics, who to listen to and who do we not listen to, right? Well, I'm not, I'm not just getting at that because I suppose also I'm saying it, it does seem to me... So, so I suppose what you're talking about, sort of the, the increase in inequality, the way yeah. it's hitting people in the here and now is inflation, right? Yeah. So, so people might be cash richer. Most yeah. people are probably cash richer than they were before the pandemic, but they feel poorer because prices have gone up. Now, from the account you give, I think that gives a very strong explanation of why house prices rose, yeah. potentially why rents rose. But it doesn't seem to me to be able to explain why the price of gas rose or the price of vegetables rose and, yeah. and for lots of people it's those prices which matter and that to me seems to be more to do with sort of energy crises wars etc yeah. etc et I, I, I think it's important to say that i've never come out and said that the ukraine war has not had any effect on inflation and i don't think the U ukraine war is not at all part of it it's def it obviously has had effects especially on things like the gas price there's absolutely no doubt about that um but i think the the flip argument and I mean, the, what you were suggesting, which is that the sort of counter hypothesis that the inflation is largely because of the, the um, Ukraine war um, is the basically the mainstream media narrative. And it's the, the narrative which most people accept because it's basically what comes out of the news. If that is the case, what the fuck is happening to London rents? Yeah, but I suppose, well, well rents is, is different anyway. I mean, I, I think your explanation 100% yeah. explains why house prices okay. have, have gone up. And when it comes to certain Michael, assets... Michael, the price of every single thing in the world has gone up. Yeah, but it can be the case that this has a lot of different causes. So I think when it comes to yeah. London rents, uh -huh. right, who, who pays rents? It's not the super rich. So competition for rental properties, yeah. like that is largely because post-pandemic Lots of people have flooded back to London. Also, actually, migration has increased. I mean, I I'm for migration. I'm also for building more houses. So you do have a high demand of people who aren't super rich, who are competing with each other for a limited supply of, of rental properties. Now, there might be some of those properties that got taken out of the market because house prices rose, so the landlord sold up. But yeah. presumably then someone's living in them anyway. There aren't that many empty homes. So yeah. I suppose what I'm saying to you is I accept that some of this inflation was caused by this, and especially asset price inflation. Yeah. But consumer prices, so when you go to the supermarket, yeah. um, when you buy gas, and even renting in London... There's only a limited extent to which in any of those fields 
you are competing with the super rich. And what you're talking about is yeah. is we have given the super rich all of this money and that means that the rest of us normal people have to compete yeah, well, with I them. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the super rich, right? It's, 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 obviously, you know, when I talk about it, I simplify it in a way to make it easy to understand. It's not a discrete thing. It's not like if you're super rich, you made a ton of money and if you're not super rich, you're losing out, you know? It's a gradual thing. The richer you are, the the better. And even that, it's not, not, it's not absolutely if you're richer, you did better off. Generally, the trend is the richer you are, the more money you accumulate during COVID. And even people in the middle accumulated a bit of money during COVID, right? So everybody has a bit more cash, but the richer have more cash. So the way you would expect that to manifest is that the price of, of everything goes up, basically, but more weighted towards the things that the, the richer people like and the things that richer people buy. Um, I think if you consider, you know, a wealthy family, um, you know, not super rich and they, you know, it's very, very plausible that a, that a wealthy family has accumulated 300 grand during COVID. It's plausible over the, over the three years. What, what's the most likely thing they will do? They'll buy a house for their kid, which would have yeah. been lived in by four renters and is now lived in by one person. So I think, I think yeah, there is I, an I think argument I'm, as to listen, why that did increase rents in London. I literally myself used to have used to have tenants in my flat, used to have like rent my spare room out during COVID. Um, but I accumulated a lot of money during COVID. So you didn't need to anymore. Yeah, so it's okay. Well, I'm not going to rent that room out anymore. You know, I've, and then I, I've, that's one less room on the market, you know, and that's, that is a classic example of a wealthy person who accumulated cash during COVID, increasing their consumption of London housing. So, it's, it's, so I suppose it's as much, to, it's not just about the super rich getting richer, it's, it's also about the middle class being able yeah, to it, improve it their relative down, position right? in it society. Found, it fountains down, right? So if the rich people start, you know, the kids move out earlier, they rather they they rent a bigger apartment rather than going in a flat shed. They have it themselves. You know, if all, they do that, well, then that's the people below them who would have been taking those apartments. Then they rent they they and they're also increasing their share. It waterfalls down, right? And then what you see if you're poor is the shit at the bottom, which is fucking nothing is left. And it's because the super rich took the flats that the rich wanted, and the rich took the flats that the middle class wanted, and the middle class took the flats that you fucking wanted. You know, what I mean, it's it's if. If people consume more housing, then there's less fucking housing. And if the rich get a ton of cash, the most obvious thing they would do is consume more housing, you know. And with regards to food, I don't think the food thing is 100% caused purely by COVID. But I mean, what did, you know, during COVID, a lot of people got into investing. My, my brother got into investing. You know, my brother's not super rich. What did he do at the beginning? He's talking to me about COVID. What did he do? He bought a fucking ton of commodities, right? You know. But what happens if the rich start buying commodities? You know, commodities are an asset class that you can buy. Well, the fucking commodity prices go up, right? Because the rich are fucking buying them. You know, and then one of the big reasons why food was more expensive, one of the big reasons is because shipping became more expensive because those ships were full of things that the rich were buying because the rich were buying more goods. You know, it's... it's well, the rich and the middle class, right? So, yeah, so exactly. It's the rich and the middle class. You know, I simplify it, but yeah, the, the rich you are, the more, the more you accumulate. Because I suppose, it, it, I think also sort of to distinguish this period from the QE after 2008. So the QE there, the, the critique of that was that that all trickled down from the top of the bank. So essentially what yeah. they did is they printed a bunch of money and gave it to the bank. I know it's more complicated yeah, than yeah. this, but essentially you can summarize, they printed a bunch of money, gave it to the banks. Here, what they did is they printed a bunch of money, gave it to ordinary people. Yeah. Now, as you're saying, a lot of that immediately trickled up to the rich through rents yeah. and et cetera. And because they weren't spending money, it didn't go back down in any way whatsoever. Yeah. But it was compared to that first round of QE, after the financial crisis, this was a bit more like, you know, what's called helicopter money where everyone gets some cash. Yeah. And so is it not the fact that the reason inflation was driven as much as it has been is precisely because this round of QE was more equitable than the previous one? Because before... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I think... I mean, this is what I said when there's, there's two things going on, which is an increase in cash holdings and also an increase in inequality. COVID led to a much bigger increase in cash holdings of what you could call ordinary people. I don't think after 2008, we saw a lot of ordinary families accumulating big amounts of cash. You, you, you would have seen it in richer families. You would have seen the accumulation of cash because they retrenched their spending massively. Um, but we saw much more accumulation of cash by ordinary people, middle class people, combined with this protection of the real economy in the sense that we didn't see a massive increase in unemployment. We didn't see a massive increase in just general fear of economic collapse of so people retrenching and unwillingness to spend. We didn't see... You know, what we saw in 2008, the massive collapse in credit accessibility for ordinary people, that's obviously going to suck spending demand out of the economy. So the situation is different, but I think in COVID, the, the money hits people in the bank. And, and if in the, in the bank account, and if it was purely the rich, the very, very rich, then I think you wouldn't have seen as much goods and service inflation. 
And I think it would have been more focused on asset inflation. Um, and I think in the long run, as I've said, I think we will see that it will be more focused on asset inflation. Are you a deficit hawk? This is a great question. Um, okay. I, I suppose just to clarify that for no, a moment. So a deficit not, hawk is someone who thinks yeah. that we shouldn't run budget deficits, we should run balanced budgets. I don't think that we shouldn't run deficits. I think that deficits are a very useful tool. I think in, in for example, in COVID, there was basically no choice but to run a deficit. It basically had to be done. You had a short-term emergency. I think that there's an, I think there's an interesting thing that has happened, which is in the last sort of 10 years, 10, 15 years, going back to 2008, the economic debate, economic left-right debate in this country has kind of formed itself around the idea of the right saying we need to tighten our belts and be austere and the left saying, no, we need to spend more money. You should run a bigger deficit. That has kind of become the, the accepted battlegrounds, obviously. Different people have different stances. But what that has meant is some people have on the left have kind of this, defined themselves on this idea when it comes to economics, just run a bigger deficit. And, you know, you're probably aware there's also been a big increase in popularity of this idea, modern monetary theory, MMT, and different people, again, read this in different ways. But the main book is called The Deficit Myth. A big part of the message people have got out of it was we should run bigger deficits. So a lot of people are defining themselves by saying we should run bigger deficits. I think bigger deficits can be super useful at times of economic contraction. But if you're doing it, you just need to pair it with an understanding of what is happening to the wealth distribution. Because you can, en you can end up in a situation like what COVID, where we run a big deficit and it causes an enormous increase in inequality. And if all you care about is the fact that the government's spending money, you will miss that. And I think this is, history will look back on what happened during COVID and say, fuck me, they, they had took their eye off the ball with regards to distribution. And that happens if you fixate just on government spending, then you allow a situation where the government simultaneously spends a lot of money and increases inequality. There's very little political opposition in this country or the world to a government which massively increases its spending and increases inequality at the same time. And that's what happened during COVID. And then what happened immediately afterwards was Liz Trust and the IEA say, hey, look, nobody's opposing bigger deficits. So why don't we just give our friends a ton of fucking government money? You know, that's a deficit, isn't it? You know, so I think... Deficits are deficits, and I think, you know, sometimes you should run them, sometimes you should not run them. But if the only thing you fight is for the deficit, then who fights for the poor? Because if you just ask for, like, it's easy for them to run a deficit because nobody's opposing it. And what I think is so fucking interesting, when Trustonomics happened, did the left stop it? The fucking market stopped it. You know, and people like you and I need to look at ourselves and be like, how have we allowed this country to reach a situation where the government thinks that the people will accept a massive slashing of taxes on the rich. And that is what happens if you just focus on the deficit without looking at the distribution. I mean, I think we both agree that we should tax the rich more. And I mean, we can discuss maybe a bit later how that would be done. I, suppose, I still want to just stay on this issue of sort of inflation and I suppose an expansionary fiscal policy and monetary policy during the well, expansionary fiscal policy because it was given out by the government but it was expansionary in the monetary sense because it was printed instead of being um, got through through taxation yeah. uh, do you also consider I suppose the benefits to a massively expansionary fiscal policy for the poor in some ways now I know that at the moment it can feel like because inflation is so high actually living standards are collapsing but also running the economy hot which is you know yeah. what what they call what they've done now which is print yeah. a bunch of money and not try and tax it out of uh, out of the system that has led to an empowered labor movement because yeah. you've got very low unemployment you've got high vacancy rates in the economy and there is a sense in which the reason fiscal conservatives often don't want to have an expansionary monetary yeah. policy is because they're scared it will empower Labour. And there is an important way, I think, in which COVID has empowered Labour. Yeah. So I suppose, you, are you potentially being a bit too negative about QE and about sort of the idea of just printing a lot of money and, and running the economy hot? Uh, let me be very clear, right? I'm not against deficits. There are two alternatives to a deficit which is lowering your spending and increasing your taxes. Those are your two alternatives you have. If you're asking me, should we reduce the deficit by lowering our spending? I will say no. If you're asking me, should we reduce our deficit by increasing our taxes, specifically on the rich? I would say yes. I think the problem in my mind is that 
we're not fighting that and it's a difficult fight to fight. And if we don't fight the fight of, no, we really need to tax the rich more, they will get richer and richer and richer at a very, very, very rapid pace. And that is what is happening now. And those assets don't come... So look at where we are now compared to where we were three years ago. The government debt is massively bigger. Private wealth of the richest people in the country in the world is massively bigger. We are weak. We are weak here, right? And if we keep doing that, what will happen is the pound will collapse you know, we'll see massive problems, we'll see massive inflation. It's just, I know that it's difficult to tax the rich. But if we keep trying to fix the problem without taxing the rich, it's like trying to cure the symptoms of your cancer without curing your cancer. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. If we don't do it, we're fucked. And I know it's very tempting to say, okay, well, that's difficult. So why don't we try and do something technical with the money supply? Why don't we try and do something technical with our fiscal policy? It won't work. It won't work. That was the first part of my conversation with the fascinating Gary Stevenson. However, there's an extra 30 minutes for Crash Course Patreon subscribers. So bonus content um, for people who sign up to our Patreon. Um, In that 30 minutes, we discussed whether Gary is a deficit hawk, why Gary thinks low unemployment isn't the sign of a healthy economy, and why Roman Abramovich shows us how to tax the super rich. Um, to become a subscriber and access all episodes and all bonus content, you can sign up for as little as £3 a month. Um, and we're also offering a free seven-day trial. Um, so to sign up, just visit patreon.com forward slash Crash Course Pod. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.